Have you ever wondered how we got from the shuttle era to where we are now? Well, today we talked to someone who was there and shaped the future of spaceflight as we know it, former Deputy Administrator of NASA, Lori Garver. That's right. This week she releases a new book called Escaping Gravity, my quest to transform NASA and launch a new space age. So here's a little preview of what you might expect to find inside. Yes, if you have a topic suggestion for us, don't forget to let us know on our social media pages at Space and Things One on Twitter and at Space and Things Podcast on Instagram and Facebook or via the contact form on our website. And don't forget to leave us a review or drop us a rating if your podcast platform allows it. That really helps us out. But right now, enjoy episode 95 of the Space and Things podcast. You're listening to Space and Things with Dave Giles and Emily Carney. I'm Emily Carney. And I'm Dave Giles. And welcome to episode 95 of the Space and Things podcast. How are you doing, Emily? I'm doing great. Busy, but I'm doing good. You have been busy. By my count, there have been three articles come out this week. I think there's been three articles come out this week. So let's talk about them. Uh, You've written one about Fred Hayes' autobiography. Yes, I did. I reviewed it. Uh, I put it on my uh, This Space Available blog, which is on the uh, National Space Society's blog roll. Please subscribe to that because they cover also a lot of other stuff that's going on with the NSS. But uh, yeah, I just kind of reviewed his book. Just go get it. it. I think it's magnificent and I I really enjoyed it. There are some stories in there that I, were just waiting to be told. You know what, that was reminded me, and this is really bad, but I have a copy, an extra copy that I was going to give away to one of our patrons and I've not done the draw yet. So we'll extend that for another week. If you sign up to our Patreon before our next episode, I will do the draw to win a copy of Fred's book and I'll send it to you. Anyway, there's been other articles you've written as well. Uh, you've done a, a For All Mankind review of the first episode. I think that would be an apt way of describing it. It does contain spoilers. Yeah, if you haven't watched the episodes yet, do not read this review. But it, it basically talks about, you know, they've entered the 1990s now. You know, a lot of the main characters are getting older, but there's new actors um, in many ways. <laughs> we got a lot of new people in the industry, but at what cost? Mm-hmm. It really is cool because there's a lot of parallels they've sort of used to what's happening now. And and actually, it kind of fits into what our show is about today and who we're interviewing today. Uh, and also, a uh, part three of your Day in the Life of Celestius uh, has come out of the launch day, because obviously you went to see a launch uh, on a SpaceX rocket of a Celestius payload. I'm sure you've got more to say about that than, than I'm saying here, but uh, you've written a, a three-parter. Will there be more parts? There's going to be sort of a personal uh, reflection. I, I just sort of wrapped it up and I'm going to let it sit tonight and look over it again tomorrow. Yeah, I was deeply affected by the whole experience and I'm probably a little biased because obviously I do work at Celestius. I've seen probably hundreds, if not thousands of, of space launches in my life, you know, and, and the whole experience for me, just seeing the people, everybody together, it, it united for me. It was just deeply like, it was very deeply moving for me. I feel like sometimes, and uh, it's a shame, but, you know, I've seen so many launches and stuff. Sometimes I'm like, man, I, I feel like I'm jaded because you sort of just are like, yeah, that was kind of neat, you know? Yeah. I never want to lose that feeling of magic, you know, that you get from like, holy crap, this thing went to space. 
and I'm not, and I want to emphasize again, you know, I'm not just saying this because I worked there, but for me, it was just a, a life changing experience. It was really awesome. Yeah, the part three article was actually really moving as well. I really enjoyed that one. I liked the parallels with, with Deke. I thought that was really cool how you did that. Yep. Anyway, links to all those articles will be in our show notes, so go and check them out. Uh, but with all that talk of a SpaceX launch and the National Space Society as well, I think that set us up nicely for today's interview. Uh, today, we speak to former NASA Deputy Administrator Laurie Garver, who has a new book which has just dropped called Escaping Gravity, My Quest to Transform NASA and Launch a New Space Age. And we think you're going to love this interview. Oh, Yes. Uh, Lori Garver held that position in NASA from July 15, 2009 to September 6, 2013, but throughout her life, she has served in a variety of senior roles in the nonprofit, governmental, and commercial sectors, notably becoming the executive director of the National Space Society for nine years from 1987. If I were to list all of her achievements, we'd be here probably all day, yeah. but Garver is a real inspiration for me and many others. In 2016, she founded the Brooke Owens Fellowship, which supports college undergraduate women who are striving for careers in aviation or space by offering them paid summer internships. But enough from us. Let's hear all about this directly from Lori Garver herself. SpaceX Dragon, we're go for launch. Let's light this candle. All right. So, Lori, thank you so much for joining us today. Let's set the scene. We, we love a origin story on this podcast. What got you interested in spaceflight? And were there any figures who stood out to you or, or inspired you? You know, my story is quite different than most people, I think, who came into the space arena who are my age. Um, I don't really remember Apollo, although I was eight at the time and mostly boys my age were undoubtedly very inspired by that. I I really didn't pay much attention until they sent someone who looked like me, and that was Sally Ride, and it happened to be the year I graduated from college. However, I did, in my first post-college job, work for Senator John Glenn. I was working on his presidential campaign, so of course he is a formative role model as well. But professionally, my interest in space has more to do with how it can benefit society than just fascination with big rockets. Amazing. And and obviously, early in your career, you were, you were highly involved with the National Space Society, becoming its executive director, and actually recently was awarded with its, uh, I'm never sure if I can pronounce this correctly, uh, Heinlein Award. Correctly. Heinlein, I believe, but yes. Yeah, the Heinlein Award. So uh, how does it feel to come full circle there and be recognized by a society that you contributed so much to? Well, the National Space Society, uh, as I say in the book, um, you know, they raised me. Um, <laughs> I, after John Glenn's presidential campaign didn't go the way we had wanted, uh, I was immediately hired by the National Space Institute, which is a predecessor organization to NSS. I responded to an ad for a secretary receptionist bookkeeper Wow! and was thrilled to get the job. <laughs> thrilled. <laughs> and uh, I became executive director after they merged to form the National Space Society a few years later. I spent over 13 years of, of my career there, and they have given me Space Pioneer Awards in the past. The Heinlein Award was one that they created that the entire membership and chapter base voted on. So that meant a lot to me to win. And it was also 
really surprising to me that after, I don't know, 35 years that they've had the award, there hadn't been a woman recipient before. Wow. Those kinds of things are both like, oh, neat, I'm the first woman, and oh, crap. Why haven't more women gotten this award? <laughs> so I, I, you know, what you have to do is hope that more follow. So we're going to fast forward a little bit. Obviously, you were with the uh, National Space Society for quite some time, and you're one of the key figures, if not the key figure, in getting commercial crew and commercial logistics off the ground for, you know, like CRS program off the ground for NASA during the earliest part of the previous decade. Now, I know you must have run into a ton of resistance during this time, you know, suggesting things be done differently at an organization that was really just coming out of the the shuttle period. Can you tell us a little bit about that time? Sure. You know, the National Space Society, I refer to them and I have a book that called Escaping Gravity that's coming out next week or the week that this is aired. And we have... Um, Within the National Space Society, there was a broad recognition that reducing the cost of getting to orbit was the number one thing that needed to be done. Many, many people had been working toward this, and I did um, agree with them and happened to be in a position to do something about it at a couple of times in my career, most notably 2008, when I led the NASA transition team for the Obama administration, the incoming administration, and then creating those early budgets that requested money for commercial crew. It was not well received, but there were a lot of reasons for that. I would say namely because it came at the same time we were canceling a major human spaceflight program that had been in development, but hadn't been progressing as it should. And I, I think, again, being being a woman, non-technical, didn't help. The programs we were proposing were less popular, I believe, for commercial crew because that was seen as taking away from existing contracts and people who were making billions of dollars and hoping to do that work themselves. So having a competition meant members of Congress didn't know whose district the work would be done in and... Of course, the contractors who were already working on these programs wanted to defend them. So it was a challenging time, but we made a deal. We had a compromise, unbelievable compromise in Washington, that there is <laughs> such a thing, um, and ended up developing both commercial crew and the government-owned and operated systems of SLS and Orion. It must be wonderful to see all of that coming to fruition in such a huge way over the last few years. How, how does it feel when you see something that you worked on, you were at the seed of, grow into such an uh, incredible tree? Uh, awful metaphor there, but I went for it anyway. Well, I actually like the seed tree metaphor. My family's in farming, but <laughs> I often ask engineers and technical people who work on this stuff what it must feel like to be part of because... I never really get that feeling as a policy person. Everything just takes so long and every um, everything has been really decided years before it actually happens and so many people are involved. But I'll admit to every single time so far that uh, we've launched commercial crew, I have held my breath, you know, not having touched a single piece of hardware. I do feel somewhat responsible I'm thrilled that it is working. Of course, 
it took longer than we hoped and it we would love to have more than one partner hopefully that will be happening soon but we're at a place i think in human spaceflight where the future is bright and that is good to see so your new book as you said is called escaping gravity and is subtitled my quest to transform nasa and launch a new space age as we've kind of suggested in what we've been talking about so are there any stories that might surprise a few people just a little uh, preview perhaps Sure. Um, There are a few stories. In fact, one of the reasons I wrote the book, of course, was to try and have this experience benefit future decisions, not just at NASA, but in other large government programs where I think what NASA is doing now is pioneering ways that can be helpful for getting other important things done. But on the surprising side, probably for some reason, people didn't really recognize that while I was on the transition team, there were people being interviewed to be NASA administrator and the president had actually selected someone um, to be administrator. I had been asked to be deputy administrator. None of that is, of course, public until they have your whole package and your vetting together. And our names went together to Senator Nelson early on in 2009, and that was Steve Isakowitz, forehead of NASA. He's head of the Aerospace Corporation now, incredible individual, has just a ton of experience in large government organizations. He'd worked at NASA, OMB, Department of Energy, Lockheed Martin. Anyway, Senator Nelson would not take a meeting with us, essentially blocking his nomination. Wow. Senator Nelson did not have a problem with me. That was not the issue. And ultimately, the president didn't pursue nominating Steve Isakowitz. And the reason that Senator Nelson pushed back was because he had his own candidate in mind, and that was Charlie Bolden. This becomes important because Charlie Bolden was not, as you can see in the book, supportive of commercial crew. This should not be a surprise because he has said it over and over and over. (laughs) I wasn't a fan. You know, what he forgets is the president was, and we worked for the president. So it was very challenging to be the deputy and more in sync with the president than the head of NASA. And he had the relationship with Senator Nelson. And so there were some back channel negative things going around that created SLS, think what you will of SLS. We on the Obama, both transition team and initial budget request did not want to have the government building, owning, operating its own launch vehicle. And here we are, you know, tens of billions of dollars and more than a decade after that vehicle was forced on us and it hasn't happened yet. Commercial crew for a fraction of the cost And having been cut many times by Congress in those same years in order to fund SLS and Orion has already started its um, successful operations. So it is surprising to me it hadn't come out before. I would have never put it out there if Steve Weissakowitz hadn't said, yes, you may tell that story. Lots could have been different. I have an additional question. You know, obviously, commercial crew came in at, you know, the end of the shuttle program or very close to the end of the shuttle program. And correct me if I'm wrong, you know, the shuttle, when it came out, you know, 40 odd years ago, it was touted as, oh, it's going to be the answer to everything. It's going to be able to launch commercial payloads. It's going to be able to do this and that and stuff. You know, the shuttle program was amazing, but it didn't really 
stand up to what it was advertised as. Do you think spaceflight was always going to go sort of in the direction of relying on commercial vendors to make it more low cost? Do you think it was a natural progression or, a, you know, a forced progression? Does that make sense? Absolutely. It's a great question, Emily, and I completely believe it's a natural progression. And that's why I, I felt bad that it was appearing within the community to be forced because of all these sort of internecing interests. But when the space shuttle was announced by President Nixon and NASA agreed to build it, and the whole purpose was to reduce the cost and risk of space transportation. Obviously, it wasn't doing that. And I agree with you. It had all kinds of other value that it gave this nation, but it didn't fulfill what it was set up to do. I was at NASA in the 1990s. Dan Golden was the head of NASA at that time. He was very focused on, since this was post-Challenger, having follow-on capability for the nation, and he was not going to have it be government-owned and operated. He started a program called X-33. Phase A was three, I think, major aerospace companies, one, McDonnell Douglas, Lockheed, and maybe Rockwell was the third. Um, and Lockheed won the down select to the test program. They were developing what was going to be called Venture Star, a single stage to orbit. Um, again, basically trying to do the same thing the shuttle was, which was be, you know, reducing the cost and increasing the reliability of space transportation. It ran into technical difficulties and it was canceled. Every other replacement for the shuttle, however, was developed to be owned and operated by the government since then. You know, Sean O'Keefe made a couple of attempts at it, Mike Griffin. But the real difference was, in my view, we had been, and in most Space Pirates' view, doing this for 50 years as a nation. And we're a capitalist society, and the private sector is how we do operational things that don't require brand new inventions every time. And this seemed to me like so obviously the right way to go. The OMB had already sort of forced NASA, and Mike Griffin did it, so he gets credit for sure, to do this for cargo, and that helped. But all that followed what Dan Golden had done in the 1990s. So I outlined that longer history in the book, because I think people should realize this all didn't just start recently, and it's and it certainly didn't start with Elon Musk. Laurie, I'm, I'm sitting here listening, and, and trying to piece some things together and I know we jumped a huge part of your career as well and I'm sure if people read the book they're going to learn a lot more about this but as you said you weren't into spaceflight until Sally Ride but you would have been massively aware of NASA as an organisation it's one of the big organisations and so on and so forth and obviously you end up working for John Glenn in his presidential campaign but you apply to be a receptionist at the NSS and you end up deputy administrator of NASA at what point do you pinch yourself and go, what? <laughs> like, you said you, you're from a farming family uh, and you end up deputy administrator. And I said, like, my head, it's like such a crazy trajectory you've had in your life. Do you ever look back and just be like, that was some journey? I'm assuming you have, which is why you've written a book. But it's really blowing my mind, this this kind of progression that you had, which is so cool. So cool. And I, I hope you enjoyed it, right? Oh, I absolutely enjoyed it. And I really did. I mean, you see more pictures of me in that period of time than ever in my life. And I am, I constantly have this very large grin on my face. I just 
I, I don't think my family knew what to think about me. First of all, even going to Washington, I was the only person who left, you know, Michigan, really my high school class, practically. We had no family in engineering space science, but my grandfather and my uncle were elected state representatives and they um, represented their like fellow farming districts and they got into it to help their fellow neighbor and, you know, make the country and the world better. And that's why I went into my career. I, my undergraduate degrees in political science and economics. My dad was a stockbroker. So I didn't really make this jump until, um, well, the Space Society caused me to really see all the things that we could do from space that was of value. Being Senate confirmed was probably the biggest moment. My mom flew out, my uncle flew out, my sister. But even that, you don't reflect on it in the moment very much. Writing the book, I was reflecting on it more, which was fun. But I guess I also don't feel I'm extraordinary in any way. I think anybody can have a path like this. And that's usually my message. I started a fellowship for collegiate women and gender minorities who are interested in space to try and have more people see all the different things they can do. And space can or doesn't have to be a a part of that. But it is a good story. Do you miss being in the thick of it? That is a really tough question. Sometimes I really don't. (laughs) (laughs) But sure, I mean, space has become, even since I left my second tour of NASA, even more exciting. They're very nice. And once you're to that sort of level in government, you get invited to a lot of things. So I've gone to launches and I insert myself um, as much as I can. And I'm looking forward to seeing more people on the book tour and so forth. Um, And I guess I wouldn't count me out for the future. I'm 20 years younger than the current head of NASA. So I was about to say is I would like to see you as a NASA administrator eventually, but I do have a question. Um, I know at one point you were training to go on a a space mission, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Can you tell us maybe a little bit about that? And would you would you still like to go eventually on one of maybe one of the private shots? Sure. This was just it's a it's not even a full chapter of (laughs) a 12 chapter book. But in chapter four called Risky Business, I talk about my unlikely space tourist effort. I was representing a client in Russia who was paying to go to space. And I also reveal his name in the book, Fisk Johnson. He also allowed me to do that. He hadn't talked about it previously. He is the CEO of SC Johnson Wax. He was not in that role at the time. But when 9-11 happened, he could no longer spend the time in Russia training. And the Russians I was working with desperately needed that Western currency for the Soyuz production. I went around and tried to market the seat, couldn't get someone on short notice, but we had done a branding study when I was at NASA a few years before that showed me how much corporations really wanted to associate with NASA's brand. And because astronauts are government employees, they couldn't do that. So I created this program with my consulting firm called Astromom. (laughs) And I started getting sponsors and I started the training and medical certification in Russia to go on a Soyuz flight that would have been in the fall of 2002. I passed my medical 
while I was there, Lance Bass from InSync showed up. <laughs> so we did some of the training together, but his plan brought to him by an agent who just thought, well, that's an interesting thing that Estra Mom has, but it would work better for a celebrity like Lance Bass, sent him an invitation to go to space. So Lance and I were over there sort of working toward going on the same seat, but because my goal was to get someone to go, my goal was to get the Russians more, you know, Western currency for their Soyuz production and to get the public to be excited again and more knowledgeable about what we're doing on the space station, as well as have a lot of these experiments that my client was going to conduct in space, I would have done and then Lance could have done. All that still would have been fulfilled. So I supported Lance at one point. I agreed to even be his backup, but the money was never there. And I ended up coming home without much more training, but it was a wonderful wonderful experience. I, I learned just a bit of Russian and I guess I would have done it. I mean, at some point, it's a little surprising now to see all these people paying so much. I had a $12 million agreement to go to space for 10 days to the space station. <laughs> <laughs> so it's hard now to think of what you'd have to pay, but obviously I didn't do it. So at this point, I am not a wealthy enough person to pay for an orbital flight. I might be in the market for a suborbital flight as things go on. I would definitely love to go. I have not made any further attempts be because really my goal is to open space to more people, not, not to fly myself. All right. So tell us a little more about what you're doing now and how you established the Brooke Owens Fellowship to support more women entering a space field. So I lead a project called Earthrise. It utilizes satellite data to help address climate change. I have been doing this for the last couple of years on behalf of a family foundation who has funded it. And really the people most able to do this are the geniuses who work in most of them, Silicon Valley, who are writing algorithms and giving us the information from the satellites, translating data into actionable information. Um, I also serve as an executive in residence at Bessemer Venture Partners, so helping to advise that venture capital firm on space investments. And I've been teaching some. I am a senior fellow at Harvard Kennedy's School's uh, Belfer Center, Science and Technology Policy. And then there's the book. So I have a few things going on right now. I also am on the board of Hydrosat, which is a wonderful satellite company developing a constellation that will help us be able to determine the stress in agriculture uh, due to hydrology issues um, earlier. And the Brooke Owens Fellowship, we founded seven years ago now. Brooke, again, I just touched on this a bit in the book. Brooke Owens was a mentee of mine. She had a diagnosis of cancer on her 30th birthday. She survived for six years. She lost her battle to cancer when she was 36. And that night, I just decided this can't be the end for Brooke. I wanted her light to continue to shine. She was one of those people. 
she I, I met her. She was working at the FAA in commercial space, but she was at OMB on the NASA account for most of my deputy years and my go-to person. And if you went into a room and Brooke was there, you just wanted to be around her. And she and I both cared deeply about diversity and inclusion and felt that the aerospace community needed to really broaden its tent. So it's interesting. I know the women and gender minorities who have come through the program now, more than 200, we offer these summer paid internship programs and mentorship and a summit where everyone can meet. They get a lot out of it, but the truth is the reason we established it was both to benefit the fellows coming in, but it was also to benefit the community. And the space program has been run by military white men for the first number of decades. And that really dictated what we did because it's a self-feeding cycle. You know, they come into it, they're interested in what drew them in. It's nothing wrong with it. It just is what it is. This is a public program. These are tax dollars. So we should be doing things that, that really address society's challenges and interests, not just those few who were in it at the beginning. Absolutely. A broad question, perhaps, but where do you envision spaceflight, both within NASA and not within NASA, being in, in 10 or 20 years? Do you see it changing much in that time, or do you think the, the trajectory has already been set? Um, I think there's chapters to be written. We we are, as I said, I think in a good place. Human space transportation is now finally becoming affordable in some sense, meaning there will be more and more things of value that people decide can be done in space. So we're transporting not just people, but satellites, spacecraft at a rate that is entirely different than previously and at costs that are much lower. So that's the whole thing, right? You need more people's good thoughts on what can be done to expand the possible. I think certainly in a decade, we ought to be back on the moon, but I would like to see us back on the moon in a sustainable way. I believe that lots of the programs that we have down the pipeline will will bring untold benefits, but the key is to make sure that we are able to keep a focus on the return to the broad segment of society, not just to those already in the program. I, I am concerned that the budgets of these few large programs will you know, take priority to others. And I'm not quite sure how that transition is going to work. We have to see, can SpaceX, Blue Origin, ULA, or Sierra Space, are they going to deliver? Assuming two or three of those break, I mean, it's just going to be very, very exciting. Absolutely. I, I have another question, which may be hard to answer, but do you have a single thing that you've achieved, both within NASA, at your time in NASA, and perhaps more broadly as well, which you are most proud of? I am most proud of the Commercial Crew Program. It is odd because, again, in the 1990s, I thought that was going to be happening. But, you know, it is hard, especially for women to even take much pride for things. And I've always had this, you know, same imposter syndrome as so many of the brookies and lots of us do. But the day to day combat at NASA in those early years of the Obama administration, as I outline in the book, 
the status quo just didn't want to do it. And so you do have people like Bill Nelson, who's now the head of NASA and was senator at the time, Kay Bailey Hutchinson, senator at the time, Charlie Bolden, head of NASA at the time, saying they came around to support it. But that just misses the point that it was still there to support by the time they came around and it wouldn't have been. NASA didn't request money for it even in the budget. It was risky, but I 100% knew it was the right thing to do and was able, even from the number two position, uh, to make the case. And I know I, I suffered personally because of it. I'm sure I still am. I don't sit on corporate boards and things like those people do who made the wrong decision. Society has rewarded them for making the wrong decision, but I don't even care. I truly, I truly just love that it's working and that people understand that I wasn't trying to kill the space program. (laughs) Wow. I kind of have tears in my eyes because it sucks. Excuse my language. It sucks that, you know, okay, you don't sit on corporate boards and stuff because of this, but it happened. Yep. That's what it was about. That's all that matters. You know, absolutely. Wow. In my opinion, in my adult life, uh, and particularly since social media has been a thing, the biggest thing that's happened space-wise that's connected with a bigger audience than than people like Emily and I was the launch of Bob and Doug. Yeah. And it, it absolutely worked. I was shaking. I mean, I was sobbing and shaking. Like, And I wasn't there because of COVID. A bunch of us got on the Zoom call who had helped make it happen. Nice. And, you know, it was also in the middle of Black Lives Matter and the split screen. And I say in the book, I don't know what fueled my tears more, but it really has touched everything. And to think of those early years, one of the reasons people said they didn't want to do it was that no one would care if it wasn't NASA doing it. They wouldn't, if, if a company did it, that wouldn't be the same, but NASA embraced it. Yeah, you know, absolutely. I'll tell I'll tell one lighter story, which is that when we were first launching cargo, the president of SpaceX called me Grun Shotwell because NASA hadn't allowed them to put the NASA logo on the vehicle, and she was hoping I could get that decision overturned. I said, "Oh my gosh, you know, let me let me check it out," and I went to all the program people, the comms people, and they said, oh, it's legal. They say it's not our vehicle, so we can't have the NASA logo on it. So I went to Charlie and he didn't want to overturn. Well, it's a legal thing. Well, when Bob and Doug rolled out in those Teslas filled with NASA logos, the vehicle, the rocket all had NASA logos. I was told by one of my friends within NASA that Gwen had to make a different call this time. She had to call and ask if NASA could reduce, please, the size of their logo because it was potentially going to cause a thermal problem for (laughs) because it was so large. Um, That, to me, shows NASA embraced it, and I'm very proud of them. And I knew they could do it because they had done the same thing with the Russians. They'd embrace flying with the Russians, who had been our mortal enemies. And the whole reason that we you know, had a human spaceflight program. So, so NASA as an organization, I just, you know, you have to give them a lot of props and obviously SpaceX, it wouldn't have happened without them. Amazing. Absolutely. That's a lovely story to end on as well. Thank you so much for joining us, Lori. This has been absolutely wonderful Uh, and good luck with the book launch. I can't wait to get my hands on a copy. Yep. I can't wait to read it.
Thanks for what you guys do. It's great. It has been an absolute honor to prepare you for this historic flight. Today, you are truly inspiring the world. We wish you a great mission. Good luck. Godspeed and enjoy the ride. Okay. Um, I'm like sitting here practically in tears, man. I want to be Lori Garver when I grow up. <laughs> I love her stories and I like how she was just really uncompromising and, and getting that goal of we're going to do commercial crew and commercial logistics. We're going to do these things. Yeah, there's people who don't like the idea of it, you know, because it's not strictly NASA doing it. But she stuck to her guns, so to speak, and it, and it happened. And that's all that matters. You know, it does suck that it did come at a personal cost. I don't I don't think that's right, you know. Part of me wonders, you know, if it if a guy had been that determined, would he have been penalized? But yeah, I just think that's incredible. I, I just I love her story and I can't wait to read this book. And I'd like to see her uh, become NASA administrator. I'm a, I'm a little biased. I, I, I like I said, I've been following her career. I'm a little starstruck right now, as, as you most all can tell. I've been following her career for a long time. And I really love the utter fearlessness that she's got. Like she just isn't afraid to ruffle the status quo. And, and I like that because those things have to be done. People might not like it. People are going to be mad, but, you know, let them be mad because yeah. all that matters is that you get the job done. Yeah, and it's nice that the story isn't necessarily over. She could still go on to be NASA administrator and get that redemption that she she deserves. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely deserves, in, in, in our opinion. That was just a wonderful interview. Like, so humble, so human. Uh, at the same time as being a super high achiever in everything she's done, which is just crazy. It didn't feel like you were you were talking to someone who had held these lofty positions. Absolutely, yeah. She was just like, yeah, you know, I, I was a farmer's daughter. I was like, real, or I grew up, you know, I'm from a farming family. I'm like, really? Like, you're the, you know, you're the former deputy administrator for NASA. Like, that's a big deal, man. Like, if I had got a job like that, I'd be wearing like. <laughs> I'd be wearing a shirt with my former job title on it probably every day. Like, <laughs> Me too. you know, Me too. I'd have probably a slight bit more of an ego about it. Like, yo, I used to be the second at NASA. Like, can I please get first class upgrade on this flight? I don't know. I'm kidding. But still, yeah. my point is, you know, this is somebody who had an incredibly, you know, high profile. You know, this is somebody who I would turn on the news and you'd see him on the news, you know? Yeah. Just, yeah, very humble, you know, very humble about her achievements and, and transforming basically the entire space program. Absolutely. I mean, that's crazy, isn't it? As you said, from a number two position to, to end up with commercial crew being the policy that went forward. It's just ridiculous. And that's the thing. I, I think that speaks also to, you know, you don't have to be the number one person in front to really make a difference in a community. And for sure, it would have helped the fact that the Obama administration wanted that as well. So she was on the side of the ultimate boss, even if it wasn't the boss of NASA. But when the number one at NASA was a former astronaut, a military guy, all that kind of stuff, yeah. Bolden would have been a formidable person to, to be going up against and to stand fast and go for it. Is, is quite something. It would be tough at any job, you know, where you're working with somebody. They're kind of, I wouldn't say your supervisor, but, you know, they're your, you know, number one to your number two or whatever, right? And, you know, and you oppose some of the things that they, you know, you you kind of oppose them. That's difficult. You know, I've been in that situation before and, and that can get tough because you're like, I want to get their ear. That is a tough position to be in and it often doesn't win you any friends. But, hey, <laughs> I hate to say this. 
results matter. You know, yeah. resu- we and we're seeing the results. In my world, it's much like watching that Get Back documentary and seeing the dynamics of the Beatles at play <laughs> in the late yes! years. Who was number one? Who was number two? Whose opinion should we follow this day? Poor George. Poor George, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> George, basically the whole documentary. I'm getting way off topic. George, so I, the whole, it was my fault. George, George, the whole dang time was like, hey, guys. I got an idea. I would like some attention, please. Yeah. Just a little bit. I won't take too long. Like what the whole. Me? Yeah, the whole documentary. It was like that. And then he just walks out. I was like, God dang. We've all been there, though. Yeah, absolutely. So. See, that was a wonderful, wonderful interview, and I can't wait to read that book. I think it's going to be really eye-opening, and we got a glimpse of some of the stories in there. It's going to, it's going to show us what really went down at that time. Uh, it's crazy to think that's already f- so long ago, 14 years ago. You know, it's absolutely nuts, isn't it? 2008 doesn't yeah. feel like it should be 14 years ago, but there it, there it is. No, I just love it because I feel like, you know, I've been reading a lot of NASA leadership books. Like I, I've read the Michael Cassett book. I hope I'm saying his name right. Hi, Mike, about George Abbey. I, I read the uh, Richard Jurek book. We had him on the show about uh, George Lowe. You know, and I, I love reading about sort of different NASA leaders, kind of the special sauce that they contributed to, you know, every program. And I think this book is, for me, going to be a must read because it's the same thing. It's going to fill in that spot about, OK, NASA history during and post shuttle and what we did to sort of fill that void, you know, and I, I just can't wait. Uh, and uh, we look forward to seeing what she does next, which is a, a wonderful thing as well. So uh, as always, the full interview will go up on our Patreon page. For those of you who, uh, who are part of that, go and check that out. Uh, but that was just wonderful. Thank you very much, Laurie Garver. When people put their minds to it, they can make things happen extraordinarily fast. The whole Apollo project was not even 10 years from the start of the concept to the successful realization. Almost anything that's technically within present possibility can be done within a 10-year time span when people set their minds to it. So, since we last recorded, there have been five launches. Now, this is quite something. SpaceX managed three launches in just over 36 hours. Quite incredible. Wow. Two from Kennedy Space Center in Florida and one from Vandenberg Space Force Base in California. There was also a launch in South Korea. It was their second launch of their KSLV-2 rocket, this time with a payload. And that's two from two successes with this rocket. So that's really impressive. And there was a launch in China As always, full details of all these launches and their payloads and any videos, if they're available, will be on our show notes, which you can find on spaceandthingspodcast.com or by clicking in the link in the notes of this episode in your podcast provider. It also looks like we're a step closer to seeing the Artemis 1 rocket launch after the team at Kennedy Space Center managed to complete the second attempt of the wet dress rehearsal. The rocket was successfully fueled on the launch pad and went through a simulated countdown as if they were to launch. It was not a perfect test, though. There was a hydrogen leak, which would have caused a scrub of an actual launch attempt. But this is still a huge milestone, and they will now roll that rocket back to the massive vehicle assembly building and start their analysis of the test results. It is hoped that we might now see this launch 
in August. Not sure what day. We'll, we'll keep you posted. That'd be amazing. Meanwhile, on the International Space Station, a maneuver had to be made to avoid some debris from the Russian anti-satellite test, which we spoke about last November. The Progress 81 cargo ship fired its thrusters for 4 minutes and 34 seconds to move the station away from a trajectory of a fragment of the Cosmos 1408 spacecraft, which the Russians decided to blow up to prove something to someone <laughs> for some reason. Yep. Frustratingly, this debris will likely remain a danger for the space station and other spacecraft for years to come. The station was also due to have a planned reboost of its orbit, but the Northrop Grumman Cygnus vehicle, which was supposed to perform this burn, shut down unexpectedly after five seconds. It's currently unclear as to why, but the crew wasn't and isn't in any immediate danger. These burns happen fairly regularly, so I'm sure there'll be another one in the fight against gravity fairly soon. And while we're watching a fictional race for Mars on For All Mankind, there's a little bit of a race of for Mars starting in our own timeline, but not to send a crew to Mars, but to return some rock samples from the planet. China announced this week that they're intending on returning some samples to Earth by 2031, which is two years before NASA and the European Space Agency aim to do so. They're planning on a two-launch mission in late 2028 using similar architecture to the joint NASA-ESA project. The Chinese have experience of sample collecting, and they've recently returned samples from the moon, becoming the first country to do so since the Soviet Union in 1976. Having rock from Mars on Earth, uh, I imagine a lot of people think we've already achieved this, but it's really quite something that we're even just going to attempt it. Yeah. It's crazy, isn't it? Because it seems like a simple thing, but it's really not. Yeah. Imagine going to be able to visit a Mars rock in a museum. Just going to be awesome. Yes. Anyway, also on Mars, there have been some changes to the mission of NASA's InSight rover. A tweet on the 21st of June from the rover's Twitter account announced, With mission goals met, my retirement is on the horizon. But as my power declines, my focus increases. I'll keep my seismometer going, recording Mars quakes for as long as I have energy. Every bit of science counts. So what does this mean? Well, the original schedule for the lander was to turn off the seismometer at the end of June in order for other instruments to be able to run until December. But they've now decided to keep the seismometer working until the end of August or early September, which will mean we'll completely lose insight before December. The team have obviously decided that what they're learning from the seismometer is getting more important data than the other instruments that they're planning on keeping online. Still, always hurts losing one of these rovers and, and probes, doesn't it? Yes. Uh, I wish there was a way we could keep it alive a lot longer, but it has it has accomplished its major science mission, which is awesome. Meanwhile, back on Earth, uh, we're often full of praise about SpaceX and what they've achieved in the world of spaceflight. I just want to emphasize that Dave and I both really love their mission and how much they've succeeded. However, some troubling stories, frankly, are also emerging uh, this isn't new, and we've reported on some of these before about staff being unhappy with working conditions. Well, this week, we've heard some new things. An article by Lauren Grush on The Verge website revealed that SpaceX employees drafted an open letter to company executives denouncing Elon Musk's behavior. I'm going to read straight from the published letter now. Quote, Elon's behavior in the public sphere is a frequent source of distraction and embarrassment for us, particularly in recent weeks. As our CEO and most prominent spokesperson, Elon is seen as the face of SpaceX. Every tweet that Elon sends is a de facto public statement by the company. 
It is critical to make clear to our teams and our potential talent pool that his messaging does not reflect our work, our mission, and our values, quote. So I'm now going to quote from Lauren's article directly, which says that the letter was shared on Wednesday in an internal SpaceX Microsoft Teams channel with more than 2,600 employees within it. The letter argues that the company is not living up to its oft-stated no arsehole policy and its zero-tolerance sexual harassment policy. The document goes on to suggest three different action items to address the situation. SpaceX should publicly address and condemn Elon's harmful Twitter behaviour. The company should hold all leadership equally accountable for bad behaviour and SpaceX needs to clearly define what exactly is intended by SpaceX's no arsehole and zero-tolerance policies and enforce them consistently. The following day, Lauren published another article claiming that SpaceX had fired a number of employees who wrote and shared the letter according to an email sent by SpaceX President Gwen Shotwell. Within that email, she goes on to say, the letters, solicitations, and general process made employees feel uncomfortable, intimidated, and bullied, and or angry because the letter pressured them to sign onto something that did not reflect their views, wrote Shotwell. We have too much critical work to accomplish and no need for this kind of overreaching activism. <laughs> overreaching activism. Anyway, one of the employees which helped to write the letter has argued that Shotwell's email is tone deaf and that the letter was a result of, and I quote, a month of dedicated hard work and soliciting feedback to try and make sure we got as much input as possible. It's also been announced that over 400 members of staff signed this letter. This is pretty crazy, isn't it, Emily? Yeah, I don't want to give too much away. You know, I don't like to speak about, you know, internal going ons at, you know, my job. But I think if anybody at Solicitus had any concerns about harassment or something like that, I would feel pretty comfortable bringing it to my boss. I would feel comfortable knowing that I would not get in trouble or anything like that. I feel like every company, and this is just my, this is my personal opinion. If others do not agree with this, that's fine. I feel like every company should be encouraged to have sort of an open door policy to discuss their concerns, you know, with, you know, professionalism and things like that. I, I really think that's something people should be able to do, you know, without, worrying about oh god i'm gonna lose my job but those are my thoughts on the other hand i've seen people say well they were right in getting fired because you shouldn't speak out publicly about your job like that well, the thing is it was an open letter but it was internal agreed it's only got published because it got leaked and correct granted that's not cool but it was originally an internal document within their internal microsoft teams thing so yeah i agree Correct. I, I know what you're saying but at the same time they were trying to deal with something with from within i agree which let's be fair uh these issues have gone back a while now yeah and there have been other attempts by staff to try and address this in the past and if it's still bad then clearly the regular processes weren't working if they were there wouldn't still be the need for this kind of approach in my opinion agreed you know, I, I don't work at SpaceX, but yeah. there needs to be a change in how this kind of stuff is going. You know, I mean, just because you have a, a very famous CEO or a very famous person up top, you know, it, it doesn't mean you shouldn't be able, you know, if you know, uh, OK, <laughs> I'm trying to word this as delicately as possible. 
as much as I admire certain things, you know, Elon Musk has done and as much as I admire his vision, I believe, you know, and this goes for anybody. I don't think anybody should be, you know, unchained on Twitter. You know, (laughs) I've had to watch things I say on Twitter. If you're a public figure, you have to be aware of that. And I absolutely think people should be allowed to to speak truth to power about these kinds of things. That's just my personal feeling. There needs to be something. There needs to be healing in this situation. That's all I got to say. There's got to be. Yeah, absolutely. It, it just needs a lot of healing. It, it does strike me as odd, though, that, that Elon's been having these rants about free speech and someone's spoken out about him in his company and they've got fired. Yeah. <sighs> Serious double standards there. But also, there's some just double standards in what they're saying. No arsehole. Zero tolerance of sexual assault. And and all, all they're asking for is clarity on uh, yeah. what does that mean? Clarity on. What does that mean? Because. Yeah. What does no arsehole mean? Because from one person, that's a different thing to someone else. Yeah. Uh, and when, when you get to a point where your company is big, it matters to have clearer guidelines on those things because grey isn't good in these scenarios. Grey complicates things. Sometimes things do need to be a little bit black and white, and that's what is useful to staff to help them be able to work properly, constructively with other people and knowing what the boundaries are. And yes, we could say, oh yes, we should all know what boundaries are, but clearly some people don't, right? Yeah. So let's have these things in place. In my opinion, yeah, I could talk about this kind of stuff all day long. Me too. And and it's not, it's not a reflection on my views on what SpaceX are doing in their mission. It's not at all. Because as we've clarified... I think enough. Yeah. Uh, we we both like what they're doing, but there's another element to this where they are currently the leading figure in commercial space flight. So what they do matters, and you and I yeah. have spoke about this before, particularly when you did your open letter to Elon Musk. What he does and what the company does matters because it's what other people will model themselves on. And if they fail, if they get disgraced uh, in, into getting, and as a result, not being able to have the, the, the cream of the crop of the, of the engineers that they need to fulfill their mission, that affects all of us. It affects what we want to see them achieve. It affects what the space industry as a whole can do. What happens to them means that Starship doesn't work as well or takes longer. That affects what Think Orbital can do. And we want to see that happen down the line. You know, exactly. You know, there's so many knock-on things here, which is why it's so important that what goes on internally in that company actually works for the employees and for the mission. And I think if you just fire everyone who disagrees with you or fire those who voice a concern, I think you're just going to make life harder for yourself. And yeah. That I agree. it would be a shame for all of us, not just SpaceX and those who want them su- to succeed. It would be different to me if SpaceX had like five people in the company. Okay, I would see why externally it wouldn't be such a big deal. But, you know, they have thousands of employees. Everybody needs to be on the same page and it needs to be not an intimidating experience. Like, well, if I say something, I'm going to lose my job, you know, or if I if I express criticism or how we could make things better i'm gonna lose my job because like there are things everywhere i've worked at i mean and i want to make it clear i've had i've worked at places and i've had wonderful experiences there where i have nothing to complain about but at every job there's things you could tighten up there's things you could improve and that's why we work hard 
it should be okay to express that. Yeah. Yeah. That, sure. That's all I've got really. You know, I'm trying to keep it positive and I'm trying not to, you know, I don't want to attack anybody. That's my thing. I do believe in their mission and I, I do think they're doing amazing things, but I also see that, okay, the employees absolutely should be able to express how they're seeing things. Absolutely. And finally, a new NASA documentary featuring the achievements of numerous black astronauts premiered on June 19th. The 50-minute documentary is called The Color of Space and is available on NASA TV, the NASA app, and on their social media channels. And uh, we've embedded the YouTube video under our show notes for this week on our website. So you can see it if you're there uh, checking out any of our uh, other stories this week. This is released to commemorate Juneteenth, which is a federal holiday commemorating the practical end of slavery in the United States, which occurred on June 19th, 1865. Yeah, it's a a good documentary, this. Have you you managed to watch it? I've watched some of it, and it's excellent. Um, There's a couple books that I've read, too. We Could Not Fail. I have it right in front of me. Let me see. It's by Richard Paul and Stephen Moss. It's one of my favorite books of all time, and it's about the early uh, black pioneers in spaceflight and in engineering. And I absolutely think everybody needs to read it because it just really underscores, you know, how few black pioneers there were. Because back in those days, we still had Jim Crow, you know, in the United States. We still had this is horrible, but it's the truth. You know, in the South, people still were being prohibited from being able to vote. I mean, during the 60s and probably as late as the 70s. And it sounds crazy and it is crazy, but it was it's reality to a lot of people. And this book is just it really illuminates the accomplishments of of a lot. You know, these pioneers such as Shelby Jacobs and people like George Carruthers, who we've talked. We talked about him in a previous episode of Space and Things and even Nichelle Nichols. You know, she didn't work at NASA, but she's definitely a pioneer who got a lot of attention for NASA. Yeah. These are people who need to be like household names, in my opinion. So, yeah, I checked out a little bit of the film. I need to watch the whole thing tonight, but it's magnificent. And uh, everybody should see it. Absolutely. So that's it for this week. Thank you once again for joining us. We've been really busy this week confirming so many guests for the coming months. It's all a bit crazy. Anyway, we're hoping to confirm a few more. Uh, On top of that, there's so much going on. Find out more by signing up to our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash space and things. We've had a few new people sign up recently. Welcome to the party and thank you for your support. It is very much appreciated. Yes, thank you very much. And thank you for listening. Uh, please consider hitting the share button if you've enjoyed the show. But don't forget, in space, no one can hear you me. Space and Things has been brought to you by And Things Productions.